welcome back to episode three of the Laugh, Think, Blow Your Mind podcast. This is the podcast where we share the best bits of content from around the grounds, where my goal is to introduce you to new podcasts, people, and interesting things, and I want you to share those right back to me as well. Now, today's episode is going to be fun. We're going to delve into the lives of three people from three recent podcast episodes that I've listened to. The first one is going to be Jelly Roll. Jelly Roll is a great artist, musician. Rich Roll is the second one. He is a podcaster, very famous podcaster and ultra endurance athlete. And I have to shout out, thank you, Jake Wilson, for recommending that podcast to me. It was excellent. Really enjoyed it. And um, we'll be getting into that second. And finally, we're going to talk about Joey Diaz, who is a Cuban-American stand-up comedian. Interestingly, and this wasn't a plan, but they all share a similar story and background. They all have uh, struggled with drugs and alcohol and addiction. And they've reached a very messy and low rock bottom in their lives. But they all were able to turn that around, thrive, and pursue the things that they love the most. Okay, that's enough from me. Let's get into the show. Before we do, as always, you can email me with the email ltbympodcast at gmail.com or you can now DM me uh, or f- and follow me on Instagram using the handle at ltbympodcast. I will be adding all of those details in the notes of the show. Our first review on today's show is a good one. We're going to start with Jelly Roll. He sat down with Joe Rogan on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, episode 1987, and they had a great chat. Now, you may already know him from his songs and his social media and YouTube, but if you're like me, you knew him, but you didn't know his story. And you can tell by looking at him and hearing his songs that he has a story, and you get to hear that on this episode Now, as I like to do, rather than just have me ramble on, I want to let others do that work for me. And this next clip is from a later episode on the Joe Rogan Experience, uh, one with Cam Haynes, where they actually talk about the episode that we're going to review today with Jelly Roll. And I think it's a really good place just to start us off. He's like this incredible talent yeah. that like everybody should know about, but right. but hasn't until lately. You know, you know, I was thinking and that about guy's th- awesome. Jelly Roll is awesome. Oh, He's a great God. story too. Fucked up as fifteen year old gets arrested, all this time in prison comes out and he's got the voice of an angel oh i i mean i'm addicted to his and he's a great guy to his his music oh his music is amazing because it's real it's yeah. like you know you feel that soul or that not life experience not tragedy but it's like it's like there's so em- much emotion in it yeah you can't you can't fake uh, that kind of authenticity mm-hmm. like what that guy is is authentic yeah, you know that uh, that need a favor. I I only talk to God when I need a favor. Oh, so powerful. Play, play some of that for me, Jamie. Play some of that for me, because so this motherfucker powerful. can sing. I, yeah, I when listened. they discovered him, like when you see that guy with the tattoos on his face and mm. he looks like a thug. Goddamn! Listen to this. And I only pray when I Savior, oh, if I only talk to God when I need a favor, God, I need a favor. I know amazing grace, but I ain't been living 
guy's good i mean to me the reason that song goosebumps i think most people can relate to that what's his voice too that's real you got the raspy it's like that's a real that's a real dude like there's some people that just have a real voice when they sing you just go like god damn it yeah there's just no no denying yeah. that talent that no. the storytelling it's like a storytelling attribute mm-hmm. the voice itself yeah and then how he delivers it and then on top of it is the lyrics yeah it's so cool that you can tell how big of fans they are and just fanboying over jelly roll and his music and i think if you head over to the episode you're going to feel exactly the same way now just to conclude this sort of introduction that I'm doing um, into who Jelly Roll is, I wanted to quickly play a part of one of his songs from his new album called Save Me. Um, It has been on the radio, you might have heard it, but it is one of my faves and I hope you enjoy it as well. Living in hell They say my lifestyle Is bad for my health It's the only thing Seems to help. All of this drinking and smoking is hopeless, but feel like it's all that I need. Something inside of me's broken. I hold on to anything that sets me free. I'm a lost cause, baby. Don't waste your time. So damaged beyond repair Life has shattered my hopes and my dreams I'm a lost call Baby, don't waste your time How good is that song? I love it. There were a couple others on the album as well, which were really good. And if you end up having a listen to the album, let me know which songs you liked the most. I'd, I'd love to hear it. Okay, let's get more into the story behind the man. About halfway during this episode, Jelly shares his story about growing up rough and uh, being in and out of jail. So, you know, Joe, I don't know if you know this, but I I spent most of my, from 14 to 25 in jail. Yeah, I do know that. I spent like a ton of time. At 16, I was charged as an adult for a, a, a charge. And... What did you do? It was a, it used to be the first time I've ever actually talked about the charge. Um, I just say it was, a, it was a heinous crime, admittedly. It was horrible. We robbed a couple of guys for some weed, but they called the police because we took some money and some stuff. And it was it was an armed robbery. I mean, we went in there with a gun. I regret it every day of my life, Joe. You know, I mean, I, I was a kid. I'm a 15-year-old kid when it happens, you know? And I still feel horrible about it. But 
because the state of Tennessee has a zero forgiveness policy for violent offenders, I've carried that unexpungable felony for 20-something years. The fact that he was in and out of jail, abusing drugs, alcohol, grew up poor, and he didn't have a proper education because he spent so much time behind bars um, during his school years, to become the person that he is today, it really is remarkable. It's inspiring. So good work, Jelly. The conversation they had was just really free-flowing. It was natural. Just a really good, enjoyable conversation. There was one point, however, which stood out to me. It's And it's these little kind of moments uh, that I noticed that gives me a little bit of insight into the person. In this instance, they were talking about some of the cool guests that Joe had had on the show in the past. And Jamie, who's the producer of the show, he pulled up an old photo of Joe with one of the guests where he had a beard. And seeing the beard, it triggered a memory for Joe because he remembered that he grew that beard around the time that his friend Evan Turner had tragically passed away. Um, Joe talked about the story, he got emotional, um, but before the conversation could move on to a next topic, which it was because it was free-flowing, um, but before it went too too far, Joe um, Jelly actually pulls himself up, takes a moment to respond to the story, and rather than just going off and talking about himself, he circled it back and he did something really respectful. I don't know if you see that the same way I do, but it's these little kind of moments that I really like. Have a listen for yourself and um, see what you think. Earth, right? Yeah. What does it get to? It's right outside of Vegas, yeah, right? Yeah, the hottest recorder I think we hit was like 130-something. Yeah. So uh, Evan, you know, is a, just a very interesting guy, very, very tough guy, too, and a great fighter, and we all loved him. And so <sighs> so that was like right around that time. That's how you remember it from the beard. Yeah, man, he was an interesting dude. When an interesting dude winds up dying in a way that's unfortunate and preventable like that, it's like, fuck, mm. man. He would have been cool to have around. You know, yeah. he, was, he had like a d- very different take on why he was a fighter. And like he was like trying to find himself through this. You know, and there's, there's certain guys that it's like there's authenticity that comes through in music. And it fucking comes through in everything, man. Mm. It comes through in fighting, too. It comes through the certain humans that are just so authentic that right. when, when they're out there, you just want, you want the best for them. Yeah. You want to see them fight. You know, and uh, when you, you, you see people like that in life, that's the, one of the beautiful things about today is that you get exposed to so many more. There's so much to right. influence you. And, and it's, it's, so it's at the tap of a – it's in our hand. Any, anytime you want. Yeah. And the, and the thing about it is it changed our business on its head, mm. like on our head. And everybody was so against it at first. Napster. Yeah, they were so, but they were so like, I never forget having a conversation with a distributor that said, well, let me say this first of all. I would like to say, though, I don't want to breeze over. I'd, I'd like to take a moment because I know it means a lot to his family. I'm sure to say rest in peace to Evan Tanner. Yeah. I'm sure you bringing that up means so much to their to that family alone and that's awesome then that alone his story will live forever because of this and that's also what's cool about the era we're in right you know what i mean is that forever we'll have that clip of joe rogan getting emotional talking about his friend evan tanner because you've seen a picture of you with a beard that makes me want to cry with you joe because that's that fucking awesome i don't want to i don't want to breeze past that because that's cool as fuck see how the conversation had, you know, had moved on to distributors and the music industry, but then he stopped and he, and he pulled it back and he gave his respect to, to Evan Turner and that story with Joe. I just thought that was a really good insight into the guy. 
The next clip is definitely worth a listen as well. It's the story behind his latest album and where the idea originated from. The album I'm fixing to drop is called Wits at Chapel, and uh, I think it comes out June 2nd. The record, Need a Favor, I was like, so can I tell you this story? It's a, yeah, it's a bit of a please. story. But it's fun to tell. So I had wrote like 100 songs last year, and I didn't feel great about any of them, to be honest. Um, the label liked a few and was trying to pick radio singles, but I just didn't have no conviction about it, Joe. Mm. And my daughter, at the same time, had found her way into this little back road church in the middle of nowhere about a country where we live. She kept asking me to come, and, you know, I have a tumultuous relationship with the Lord, so I wasn't, you know, sure how I'd show up, but I was like, you know what, I'll go. And I went, dude, there's 100 people, a little back road church, you know, 20 of them were kids that went to high school with her. And around the same time, I caught this little motherfucker smoking pot, right? She's 15. She's doing 15-year-old kid stuff, and I was like, Betty, you won't believe it. About, about your age, I started making these same decisions, and I was going to this little bitty church in Antioch, I tell her the story of this church. She don't believe it. So I take her to this old church. It's still there. It's called Witsit Chapel Baptist Church. And that night riding home with her, I didn't tell nobody, but in my mind I thought, that's the album I'm writing. Like, fuck every song I wrote, I'm writing this album. I called Zach Crowell. He produced every Sam Hunt song ever. You know, one of the biggest producers in town I've known in my whole life. He's here with me right now. And uh, I said, dude, I want to write an album called Going to Church. And I just kind of want to write this kind of journey and just kind of A to Z it and write a real project. And Zach was like, I'm in. He's like, well, why don't you just call it Wits at Chapel? So that's how we ended up doing Wits at Chapel. So when Need a Favor came into the fold, I was like, what's worship music for sinners sound like? Like, what is a motherfucker like me? You know, because, you know, when you're in church, it's holy, holy, you are great. I was like, I don't, I don't necessarily feel that way. So how do I feel? You know what I mean? And then it was like, only talk to God when I need a favor. You know, and I was mm. like, we got to build it with a choir and big production. I want that old uh, stomp yeah. clap, mm, you know, that old yeah. church feel. And I want to bring like that vibe of that church, you know, into the into that. And the whole thing is the whole album is built on that vibe of like there's fire and brimstone. There's everything you go through in a Sunday morning worship service. If you've ever been to a Sunday in the South worship service, they're gonna, you're going to convince you you're a horrible human at some point. You're going to hell. And then at the end, they'll hit a major key instead of a minor one finally and go, but there's hope. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I was like, how do I, <laughs> I was like, how do I write that? You know? If you love music, this is going to be a great episode for you to listen to. They spend a lot of time talking about music from earlier generations, different styles of music. And even at one point, Jelly talked about a recent American Idol singer who did a James Blunt cover for his audition. This clip of them talking about it actually went viral over the last couple of weeks and for good reason as well. The thing that you need to know about this clip before you hear it is that the singer on the doing the audition, his dad recently passed away and he was really emotional telling his story prior to singing. And I just, I just wish his dad got to see him do this. He nailed it. He did so well. So here's the clip. Yeah, He's but really it, I just want you to see this for a second. Yeah, this has been so cool. I feel like we're just hanging out and showing each other music we, are, we like. We are. <laughs> we're just chilling. Up. I knew this was going to be cool. This is fucking That's the fun part about doing podcasts <laughs> with people like you. You just yeah. hang out. Yeah, just, just, just fucking hang and fucking chit chat. So, well, yeah. Yo, let me show you this other kid. Okay, yep. Start off with crying. Right. So. Yeah, so he was just crying. Watch. Oh. Before they turn off all the lights I won't read you your wrongs or your rights Time is gone Oh, I'll tell 
Sorry, I did that to us, man. Oh no, please! <sighs> he's Holy just fuck. so good, man. That's so good. so good. I'm like he's 18. He's 18, dude. I'm finna meet this kid this weekend, and I'm literally to the moon about it. Holy shit, is he good? I'm That's already- crazy. I've listened to that like 10 times, and I still get goosebumps. The two parts that I really love is the lyrics when he says, "We're just two grown men saying goodbye." And the last line when he says, it's my turn to chase the monsters away. So it was just that kind of stuff in the podcast, back and forward in the conversation, um, sharing music clips and things like that. It was brilliant. I really loved it. Okay, so that's going to do us from for that pod review. As I said, really good episode. It's a long podcast. The, they're always long. This one was three hours. And uh, I hope you head over there for a listen for the full show. Our next podcast is one that was recommended to me by a listener, Jake Wilson. The podcast name is The Diary of a CEO. It's hosted by Stephen Bartlett. Now, I hadn't heard of this one before, so I was pretty excited to find it. Um, the episode that I chose was the interview with Rich Roll. And Rich was some someone that I've known before and I've enjoyed listening to, so I thought that'd be a really good place to start. And in this episode, they really get down to the deep stuff. They make you think. But before I jump into the background on Rich Roll and who he is, take a listen to the teaser that they released for this episode. I think it sets it up really well. How much pain are you willing to tolerate before you're willing to course correct? A California lawyer turned himself into one of the fittest men on the planet. Rich Roll, globally recognized ultra endurance athlete, New York Times bestseller, and host of one of the biggest podcasts on the planet. You've sat down with 800 of the world's smartest people. Is there one overall takeaway? This theme of transformation. 
So my story, I graduated top of my class, the world-ranked swimmer, and then I was working as a lawyer. So on the outside, it looked like I was doing pretty well. Inside, I was dying. My first escape was through drugs and alcohol. My family didn't want anything to do with me. Marriage that ended on the honeymoon. Went to jail, could barely make it up a simple flight of stairs without being winded, and that was a harsh dose of reality. The episode starts off by digging into the background of who Rich is, or better yet, who he was. And he described a fairly typical story of a kid who was picked on, bullied in school, had trouble making friends, and he found his solace in swimming. And he was quite gifted, and he did really well. He was offered um, scholarships to all the top universities in the country, and he chose Stanford University as they had the number one swim team and program in the country at the time. But this is where he gets introduced to drugs and alcohol and partying, which will later become a huge problem for him. And he explained that this was the period that he that started the long decline of his life, moving away from his potential and leading him eventually to hit rock bottom. He managed to graduate still and then started working as a lawyer. But he said he was really unhappy and, and he was drinking a lot more. And he said this was the period where he was just operating as a functioning alcoholic. However, this progressively got worse and worse. He explained that he got married and then divorced while, uh, while on the honeymoon, which was a strange story. He had a run-in, he had multiple run-ins with the law, multiple DUIs, got fired from his job. His friends and family all started pulling away and distancing themselves from him, and he hit rock bottom. Luckily, he sought out help. He spent 100 days in rehab. He joined AA and he slowly turned his life around. The next clip picks up where this summary left off. So it's the period just after getting sober and Rich trying to get his life back on track. In many respects, what you went on to do upon leaving rehab is you, your life slowly moved towards ultra-athletic sports. Yes and no. I mean, I think that uh, the the shorthand kind of Google version of my story makes it look like all of this stuff happened in a very compressed period of time. Uh, but actually, when I left rehab, which is where I lived for 100 days and resumed my life in Los Angeles, I spent the next 10 years trying to solve the dilemma of my life that I had self-created. I had to repair my relationships. I had to become trustworthy to other people again. I had to, um, you know, be somebody who was reliable and would show up on time when they said they would. All those sort of like normal things that normal people do. I had to um, rebuild for myself. So for 10 years, I immersed myself in the recovery community in Los Angeles. And I tried to become that corporate lawyer that I thought that I wanted to be, um, to be kind of approved of by my parents and by society without really grappling with um, who I wanted to be uh, because I was so caught up and so ashamed of my past and embarrassed of how I'd screwed my life up that I wanted to prove to myself and to everyone else that I could be that person that I was at 18 when I had all of these opportunities and choices. And I was blind to kind of the inner journey, despite sobriety, the blind to like really trying to figure out like what made me tick and what I might want to do for myself that felt like an indulgence. And so the ultra stuff came much later. That came like, so I got out of rehab at 31. It wasn't until I was turning 40 
that I had another bottom where I had to reckon with my lifestyle choices with diet and movement, et cetera, because I'd put on 50 pounds and was just pursuing this corporate life um, to the point of, 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 of illness, honestly. Like I was, um, although I'd been this athlete, I just could barely make it up a simple flight of stairs without being winded, tightness in my chest, heart disease runs in my family and just had a second situation in which I realized I needed to overhaul my life. So there was a whole 10 year period in between those those kind of moments of awakening. Okay, have a listen to this next clip. This is where Rich gives his answer to an example of someone who might be listening to this conversation and feeling that they're not in their right place and not doing what they love, just going through the motions of living life and not feeling fulfilled. For me, I would say to that person, what is it that gets you excited? Like, what is it that you feel is unnourished in your life? Do you have a creative itch? Is there something calling you or something again that you used to do as a kid that you really enjoyed? And for some reason, unbeknownst to you, you don't do it anymore. Maybe it's music. Like, yeah, it could be music or, or stand up or you play football, right? Like being on a football team or doing something, you know, just having coffee with your friend or what have you. Uh, finding a way to build that back into your life in a way that isn't going to derail your current life. But I think just breathing on that, like giving space to the things that bring you joy in the most primal sense, like the simplest things that just you remember made you happy that you've forgotten and recapturing that and finding a way to respect that, protect it, nourish it, um, and and inject it into your life. And I think the more that you you kind of tend to that garden, suddenly, oh, a little opportunity over here pops up or something is telling me I should move this way. These are very subtle energies that you have to be present for in order to um, notice them when they appear. But I think those are the subtle energies. That's the like, those are the waves you want to be surfing. And you can do that while you're working at the bank. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. And over time, maybe you start moving a little over this way. Five years later, your life is unrecognizable. And I think this goes to the impatience that we all have. We all want to be this idealized version of ourselves, happier, fitter, thinner, richer, whatever it is, overnight. And we overestimate what we can accomplish in a year or maybe in, in a couple of years and completely underestimate what we could do in a decade. We're not wired to think in decades. It seems too intangible. But if all you do is make tiny little changes to build in habits into your life that bring you joy or fulfillment or happiness or purpose in incremental micro allotments that don't disrupt the rest of your life, you do that for 10 years straight, your life is going to be different. And I can promise you that. What I love about that answer he gives is you don't have to go out and quit your job or make some radical change to be happy. He says, find that thing that makes you happy and bit by bit introduce that into your life. He said that people overestimate what they can do in a year, but underestimate what they can do in a decade. And this is so true. Bit by bit, if you stick at it, opportunities come your way and you can transform your life into something you want and away from something you don't. This can be seen in Rich's own life, how and why he got into ultra endurance events. It wasn't a sudden thing. It, it just started a little bit at a time and then grew from there. This next snippet from their conversation gives some great words of wisdom. 
This part really stood out to me. At the start, he talks about how life gives you little nudges when you are living out of alignment from your true self, out of alignment from who you are supposed to be or could be, rather than who you are right now. And this gets louder and louder the further we drift away from that. That when you are living your life out of alignment with your best self, the universe comes knocking and it knocks gently. Like you're, you're maybe you're out telling lies or whatever it is. Like you're just not, you're not, you're not living your life in, in integrity, like in alignment with your own values. And we all do this, right? We're not all living perfect lives. So, and, and, and so when you do that, like there'll be nudges and those nudges will be very graceful at first. And if you ignore them a little, a little bit louder, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. I can, I can, you know, I can deal with that. The knocks start to get more intense, more intense, more intense, more intense. And then you get two DUIs in six months and you're in jail or your partner leaves you or whatever it is, right? Like how much pain are you willing to tolerate? How loud does the knock have to be before you're willing to course correct? Change is very difficult. We don't want to make change or look, if, 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 uh, if change were easy or it was a logical thing, like here's the answer, do this. And if everybody just did it, there would be no self-help industry. There wouldn't need to be any books. You just tell somebody what to do and they do it. So why don't they do it, right? We don't like to be out of our comfort zone. We have a certain way that we live our life. And until that is so disruptive, disrupted, we're going to continue on that path, right? So the question becomes, how much pain do you have to be in before uh, you're willing to uh, walk through the fear of the unknown that the change presents. How loud does the knock have to be? How low does the elevator have to, to drop? Um, and I think that that answer is different for everybody. But the amazing and confusing thing about it is that the possibility of change exists in all moments. We can make that choice at any time. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to be in pain. And yet we still don't do it. That end part is really good as well. How much pain are you willing to endure before you will make a change? It's sad that we will put up with so much pain rather than just making a change. And I'm guilty of this in so many aspects, and it's probably why I relate to it so much. I think we put up with it because the fear of the pain of making the change will be greater than the pain that we're in now. But that our assumptions are really wrong on that. So if you're overweight, for example, and you start getting these little nudges from life, Initially, you don't like how you look, so you stop going to the beach or hanging out with friends or dating or whatever it is. That's a form of pain, but it's a low dose. Then you start getting high blood pressure, you're damaging your body, but you put up with that as well. Then you start getting sick and you have other issues crop up as well. And the knock gets louder and louder before something really bad happens, like a heart attack or some other major health event, all because... We didn't want to experience the pain of doing some exercise or eating healthier or being disciplined enough to stick with those better habits for more than just a week. I think you can really tell that I enjoyed this episode. I got a lot out of it. Um, I want to end my review of this pod with this last point that Rich talks about, which is our current comfort crisis. Life is very comfortable and easy, but we need to put ourselves in situations that are uncomfortable for us and hard for us to be able to grow and actually to feel happy. Let's have a listen. You don't grow unless you go out of your comfort zone. 
And that's in every facet of your life. If you want to become smarter, you have to read books or go to school. Like that's not always comfortable. There's a million different varieties of this. But yes, we are in a culture that prioritizes comfort and luxury. And it's all about making our lives easier. Ironically, what makes us happy is putting ourselves in difficult situations, not so difficult that they capsize our lives, but difficult enough that we're testing ourselves and we're grappling with obstacles and we're overcoming them. And on the other side, we feel a boost in self-esteem. We feel more ourselves. We feel more alive and we experience growth and connection with self and connection with other people. This is the stuff of life. And yet, it is not the way that society is constructed. To, we have to go out of our way now. We have to seek the, it used to be, this was everyday life just to survive, right? And now we actually have to pay money and travel to places to have these experiences. What's so amazing is, is that, you know, when I started doing these ultra races, they're, they're all very kind of like low key, under the radar. There's not a lot of media attention on them. Um, you know, it's a subculture. Uh, it, that has been around for a while. But in the last decade, we've seen an explosion in interest uh, in, in like doing 100 mile races. Like there's lotteries now to get into a race where you have to run 100 miles. Like if you told somebody in 1800 that this was going to be the case, they would think you were insane, right? So what does that say? It tells us that we feel nourished by doing hard things, that, they're, that we are extracting value from those experiences that we don't get in the mundanity of our everyday lives. Well, there you go. Thanks, Jake, for sharing that new podcast with me. If anyone else has any recommendations for me, please send them into my email at ltbympodcast at gmail.com, or you can now find me on Instagram using the handle at ltbympodcast, and you can send me a DM. We now move on to our last review for this episode, and this is someone who I knew from the start of making this podcast that I wanted to talk about on the show, and that is Joey Coco Diaz. And it's difficult to describe someone like Joey Diaz. You just, you've got to experience him to describe him, if that makes any sense. As a very brief summary on Joey Diaz, I want to just say he moved to America from Cuba with his mum when he was just a young boy. They moved to New York and his mum ran a bar there. Uh, Joey mixed with all the wrong people because his mum works, you know, so many hours at the bar that he had a lot of idle time and he has a million crazy stories from his life from this period and he always likes talking about them. Um, at 16, he found his mum dead on the floor of their home and that left him with no parents and his life got a whole lot crazier um, from that point. Fast forward to him going to jail for kidnapping and uh, aggravated assault where he was in for about one and a half years. He took up stand-up comedy after that jail sentence. Someone in jail actually said that, mate, you need to, you need to do stand-up. Uh, however, he was addicted to cocaine um, while working a job and doing comedy at the same time. While in the comedy circles, he actually met Joe Rogan and Joe took a real liking to him, gave him a lot of opportunities to go on the road, uh, open for him, got him on his podcast, even though that was still the early days of podcasting. He eventually kicked his addiction um, and his career took off. Now, I've watched hundreds of hours of him on his own podcast or whenever he's a guest on someone else's podcast over the years. 
He now has a book out about his life called Tremendous, which I'll definitely be reading and sharing with you as a standalone episode at some point in the future. All right, getting back to the review, I chose a recent episode that um, Joey Diaz was on from the KFC radio podcast hosted by Barstool Sports. Now, if you listen to the podcast version of this episode, um, you'll have to skip forward about an hour and 50 minutes. That's where they're just doing like a little chat together before they actually get into the interview with Joey Diaz that they've got at the end. However, what I did was I just um, I just watched the, the interview by itself on their YouTube channel. I'll leave the details on how to find all these podcasts in the show notes. The first clip I wanted to add onto here is when Joey was he had an acting role on the movie Basketball, you might have heard of it, and how he was actually stealing roller skates and returning them to a sports shop and getting $140 every time he did this. Uh, and it's just a really funny story. Many times through reading it where I was like, I always uh, talk about watching the movie Flight with Denzel. Good and I watched movie. It, hung, great movie. I watched great it hung over on a Sunday. And the anxiety I was getting where I was like, just stop. Just stop doing drinking, right? And when you were on basketball and you were still stealing all the road plays. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, dude, you don't need to do this anymore. You're on the movie. Stop fucking being a girl. And they kept saying, what's going on with the roller skates? And listen, any New Yorker, you know what I'm saying? Like any Brooklyn guy, Bronx, Bronx guy, Queens guy, anybody from New York. It would have taken two weeks. I mean, it's in our blood. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, you could only look at a fucking trailer filled with roller skates. <laughs> for how long? Steal them all. And they're not moving. Nobody's using them. And I'm like, so one day I just wanted to play it against sports. And I go, how much for these skates? And they're like, we'll give you a buck forty. I'll be back tomorrow. Every fucking day. I was in there, buck forty plus tax. They even gave me the tax back. No receipt. It was fucking priceless. <laughs> By the time, like three weeks in, I went and looked at the truck. There was nothing left. There were like size four and size 18. Like fucking, what's his name? Fucking uh, the guy from Philly, the center was going to be in the movie. Yeah, with these big ass roller skates. I cleaned everything out. In fact, the day I shot, I'm not on fucking roller skates. I was not, watch that. I'm not on roller skates. I make believe like I'm Ralph Brandon and shit. I didn't, was, you, I didn't know you made believe. There was no size 11 roller skates. You understand me? I cleaned them all out. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. And then the guy started telling me, do you have any, you have any connections for rollerblades? Because it was rollerblade in LA. He goes, you got to bring me some rollerblades. Go, Next movie. <laughs> Next movie. Oh Dude, that God. is the best. I mean, stories like that are just so priceless. All right, let's just go straight to this next clip. It's also hilarious. He talks about some of his experience of prison life. Because he was saying, you know, he, he, he's always said, like, I think I would do okay in prison hanging out with the boys. And it's on, you're on a schedule and everything kind of taken care of. And that I think first kinda... prison you were in in Colorado where you're like, he's in the mountains. There's like 12 guys. We'd tell us the guards went to get us for dinner. Oh, my God. I was like, I <laughs> fucking killed awesome. that. That, that, that sounded like uh, my college dorm freshman year hanging out with the boys. Summit County Jail. Yeah. <laughs> Summit County Jail. And if you were there 30 days or longer in the winter. They took you skiing. I was going to say, they, I was going to joke they gave you a lift pass. <laughs> they took you skiing. You the reason so, I, like, was, I wouldn't even want to get out of that jail. Let's just no. stay here forever. The reason why I wanted to go to Rifle as a camp 
was because they took your skin. <laughs> and in the summer, you were a lifeguard at the pool in town. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? You're, you're watching kids? <laughs> at, Camp, at Camp George West, they let you out for 20 minutes a day to go to the 7-Eleven and go shopping. So you had to make, and it was golden, so you're close to Coors. Yeah. So you can't really drink or nothing, but I'd rather take the 20 minutes out and just walk out of there. Yeah. And then I got them. I used to drive them crazy because I figured out you call the Chinese place and tell them to have your order ready. And I'd walk back in the prison with a spare rib. they go, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> you know, and the camp, like where I went, there was some fucking sick people at this camp because they were finishing their long sentences. Mm -hmm. And you had a lot of federal people in there. But I met one gangster, and that's all I needed from the Bronx. One fucking guy. guy. Yeah. And he was a big fat guy, Italian guy, and he cooked. He made his living in there by cooking. Nachos and just sandwiches, everything. He, and then when he found out that I could bring him shit, I would bring him haagen ice cream and he would make fucking cannolis, and like yeah. jailhouse cannolis. It's <laughs> fucking crazy. It was insane. And at that time, AIDS was new. So they had built a new AIDS wing that was fucking state of the art. There was 10 beds, but only three guys in there. And they had like a big screen TV, a refrigerator, their own Fuck kitchen. Out. We'd go in there and fucking party with the AIDS guy. <laughs> Fuck it. Where's those three AIDS motherfuckers? <laughs> Let's watch some sports here today, Jack. I just, I love the stories about him in prison uh, or jail, county jail. This next one, Joey tells the guys a story about how he actually got back at someone in a way that only Joey Diaz could think of. I don't you know, you find, you find a niche in there. And to be honest with you, I, I got around perfect in that. I was good friends with the Crips. I was good friends with the Bloods because they both worked in the kitchen. You know? Everybody loves food, man. And I would torture them in the kitchen. So I had that. Like, I could get away with that. The bikers were okay. The white supremacists were okay. Uh, the bikers, they were a little stupid. There was one guy who had to fucking bang his head off a wall one day. That's the kid I talked about in the book. I took a shit in a box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And put it in an American cheese box, and I put it in his drawer with a little American flag. Oh. <laughs> And he, kept, and he would call people in. Does my room smell like shit? Because we all worked in the kitchen. And he, I hated this guy. He had long hair. And one day he, he found a box of shit. I took like an 18 inch, inch. By the time he found it, it looked like a little chihuahua shit. And he's like, I'm going to figure out who fucking shit my thing. That is, that is. <laughs> <laughs> he saw a little ones. It didn't come from Joey. Uh, like, yeah, Joey you, didn't you immediately had an alibi. Joey like, did big shit. Oh my god, that can't be me. <laughs> it's funny to hear those types of stories, but I also wanted to include this next clip to show the other side of Joey and his relationship with his mum and how it was her who actually wanted Joey to do well and thrive in a place of opportunity, which she never actually had the opportunity for herself because she was growing up in Cuba. Uh, it was that mindset that helped Joey eventually turn his life around, even if it did take him a very long time. My mother's story, when you read about her, you're like, this bitch caused a lot of problems. But she also put two kids through college, her grandsons. Yeah. I mean, you know? with the hand that she... And I didn't go to fucking college on my mother's nickel. Yeah, yeah. But her goddaughter, both her goddaughters went to college. My mom did a lot of good things. And, yeah. she, and she raised me the best that she could, considering she lived with nine brothers and sisters in a fucking hut in Cuba. And at night, they would get attacked by cicalia bugs. They couldn't sleep with the lights. I mean, it was uh. just horrible. And then my mother's sister got raped. 
and she fucking stabbed the guy and fucking killed this and killed him. So she had to come here. So all those little stories got to me. And at one point, in all my drug addictness and all my stupidity, I'm like, you know, man, my mother didn't come here for me to be a fucking jerk off. Mm-hmm. This has to stop. Mm-hmm. This had this behavior has to stop. You know, right. my mother's plans for me were to pay back the United States for accepting us. Yeah. It meant me. My mother was like, you go to the army, and then you go to law school, and then you're going back into the army, and you're gonna stay there for 20 years. I would sit there and listen to her for plan. I'm well. I don't know what the fuck she's thinking. Army shooting people, Vietnam. That ain't for me. But in her heart, she was like, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. They opened up a life to me with no questions. And she came here and prospered with those fucking bars. So she's going to sacrifice me to the government. Like She was a Kennedy fan. Mm-hmm. She refused to go to a Met game if she couldn't go and hear the national anthem. Yeah. People don't even give a fuck about the national anthem yeah. no more. My mom beat me if I spoke Spanish on the street because we were in America. We were in fucking America. Now you walk on Broadway, people are speaking languages from all over the world. They don't even give a fuck about your feelings or who the fuck you are. When I was growing up one time, a fucking teacher at my grammar school threw two kids off for talking Spanish on the bus. And we all were going to fucking kill them and shit. And when I got home, I told my mom. My mom's like, no, you're not. He was right. This is America. They gave us the opportunity to come here. The least you could do is learn the fucking language. How good is he? All right, this last clip, we've got Joey telling the story about how he eventually quit cocaine. There was no AA meetings. There was no rehab, just cold turkey, made a decision, and he quit, and he never relapsed. Was Spider-Man the movie where they had the meeting beforehand where they were like, Joey, no, you like to have a good time? And you were like, I thought no one knew. No, no, no. That was a, a movie called Boilermaker well, okay. that I did the table read for with the father from The Fighter. He lived in my neighborhood, that crazy fuck Jack. And he said, you want to do this table read? I did it. And then a year later, they contacted me like, we got the movie, but it's low budget. Okay. And then they go, can we come in to go over the script? And that's when they said that to me. And you thought you were like keeping it a good secret? I knew people knew, but I didn't know that it was becoming a problem. Right. And uh, I just was like, okay, I'm going to do it. The movie, I'll do the three weeks clean because it was 21 day shoot in a row. No days off. Yeah. So they're like, if you, and it was a room like this, and we're all at AA meeting. So if you miss, it's not like they shoot the other side of the room. The camera was there. So they're like, you got to show up every day. And at the same time, like my cat got sick, one of my cats died, and there was another cat in the house that my mom, my wife brought up to help him live. And she was going to put him back in the yard because it was like a 2,000 fucking kittens back there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I didn't like this particular cat that she brought up, super bad. I named him super bad in the yard. <laughs> I'm like, this motherfucker, I'm going to kill this fucking super bad. Because I had a Siamese already picked out, like a gangster, like a, with the fucking eyes and shit. And that's who my wife brought up that night. She brought up the cat that I really loved that I was going to bring up. He had anemia and super bad. Their legs had swollen. They were ready to fucking die. And uh, I kept going to the bathroom to pee and do a bump of coke. And I was watching both of them dying in front of my eyes. And I got on my hands and knees. I pet him, you know. I didn't like super bad, so I didn't fuck with super bad. I'm like, die, motherfucker. <laughs> you could die. And uh, I went to bed, and my wife woke me up in the middle of the night. She goes, DJ died. And I said, just closed the door. You know, I was coming down off coke. It was just another miserable fucking night in my world. But something went off, and I go, you know what? This cat's not dying in my house. This super bad is not dying in my house. And I got up. My wife was doing something in the kitchen. At the time, she was my girlfriend. 
And I got on my hands and knees and I go, God, I'm fucking, uh, I know you don't want to hear from me. <laughs> I know it's been a while. <laughs> but uh, if you save this motherfucker, I'll never do coke again. And I could feel my Pinocchio nose just growing <laughs> as I said it. I'm like, Woo. I'm like, oh, this is such a bullshit story. <laughs> but I started petting him, you know, and I, he was purring. I brought him oatmeal cookies and he was purring and purring. And something, I go, I just can't do coke. And it was three days, six days, seven days. And I got on that set, and it was 12-hour days. So honest to God, when I got home at night, I was tired. And some nights, I would take a sleeping pill just so I'd have to deal with the, the anxiety from not doing coke. Because quarter to eight every night, no matter what I was doing, quarter to eight, I would get those cramps in my stomach, and I would black out on the way to the ATM machine. Like, I would cut people off. Yeah. I wouldn't give a fuck. Until I had that coke in my hand, I was a mess. Once I had that Coke in my hand, I didn't do it right away. I put it in my cocaine pocket, yeah. <laughs> and then I did my comedy, my comedy store. Like you had it. Like you, you, as long as I knew I had it, yeah. I'm good. And once I do my last set, then I could snort some fucking Coke. Mm. So when that fucking cat lived, like, I stopped doing Coke, and I'm like. So, and so like, it was, that was it? That like, was no it. Relapses, no relapse? No relapse, nothing. Wow, that's great. Like, four days later, I went and I bought a gram of Coke. And I went up to the comedy store because a friend of mine died and there was a wake for her, like a gathering, not a wake. Mm -hmm. And I had some incident happen up there and I got so hot that I gave the coke away. And I just went home and I'm like, wow, for me to give coke away? Yeah. Holy turned the, turned the fuck! <laughs> Joey Diaz did not give coke no, away. No, like I was at home going, I don't know if I should have gave it away. <laughs> Maybe I should call him up, I need this, yeah. yeah. And then it just turned into 30 days. And I'm like, why go it? back? And then it was 60 days, and it was 90 days. I didn't tell nobody, I didn't tell Rose. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody for about six months. Okay, so that's Joey Diaz. And that's it for another episode of Laugh, Think, Blow Your Mind. I hope you enjoyed those three reviews. Remember to follow the show on your podcast player. It really helps um, my podcast from the early stages if you, if you follow along. Um, if you're liking these episodes, of course. And please get in touch with me if you want something reviewed on here from your own listening. Um, get in touch on email or Instagram. Until next time, thanks for listening.